In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again this evening. Help us to set aside the cares and the woes of the day and relax and just be open to what you have to say to us through Holy Scripture. Help us to understand not only the words that are in the scripture, but what the meaning was. Because as we go through and read, we can often see that the words just don't seem to mean what we think they mean. And that's because the message is the more important thing. So we ask your blessing on our efforts this evening. and We just give you praise and thanksgiving for all things. In Jesus' name. Tonight we're going to begin what is the essence of the book of Deuteronomy. As I think I told you perhaps more than once, uh, the first four chapters that we went through last week were written long after the main part of the book. That is chapters 5 through 29. In this handout that I gave you, which says the agenda, it is chapters 5 through 29, that is the essence of the book. Chapters 1 through 4 and 30 through 33 were written after the Babylonian exile and added on at a later date. That's not unusual for Old Testament writings. In fact, uh, most scholars believe that even in Matthew's Gospel, uh, the first two or three chapters, uh, which we call the infancy chapters, were added on later. And uh, as we've said before, the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, was written long after uh, the second, third, fourth, and fifth books were written. And that is not unusual in that time period. And it was probably because the Old Testament started out with the call of Abraham and they didn't have anything to precede that or they didn't have a beginning. So they added it on at a later date. And I think that's fine. It, it works out. I think that God really inspired the writers who prepared those added-on parts in order to really round it out. But tonight we're going to begin the essence of the book of Deuteronomy, which if you read in second book of Kings, uh, particularly the the history of both King uh, Hezekiah and Josiah, you'll find that this is the Essence of the book that was written in the north part of Israel in the 8th or ninth century. And because it was sort of uh, poo-pooed or rejected or ignored by the people at that time because of uh, their interest in other things, uh, it was then taken when the north was overrun by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., it was taken to the south and spirited into the temple in Jerusalem, where it remained for 50-some years 
before it was really discovered again and brought to life. But then the South suffered the same fate in 587 BC and it was then taken to Jerusalem, uh, to Babylon where after they spent a while wondering, well, how did we get here? Uh, what did we do? Uh, and of course I'm being a little facetious in a way, but that's in essence what it was. They didn't understand why God didn't protect them from the Babylonians or uh, the earlier group in the north from the Assyrians. Why he allowed them to overrun the country and cart them off as uh, indentured servants. I don't want to use the word slaves because that's not exactly what they were. But they were in bondage in a way uh, as indentured servants were. Uh, and it took a while for them to figure out, as I said, why are we here? How did we get here? And it's because of their disobedience. Because they totally ignored God and the rules that were in this book, which is essentially the Ten Commandments restated, along with a lot of other rules and regulations that Moses and his followers developed over the past seven or eight hundred years from the time of Moses to the time this was written. So that's what we are going to be studying. But it's more important that you kind of understand why. Because you've heard the words over and over and over in church uh, and perhaps elsewhere, maybe in school or whatever. Uh, but it's the important part is to why are these words being restated? Remember, you'll find the same things in Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus. So, why are they being restated in this book? And it is because of the idolatry and the apostasy that became rampant in the northern kingdom during the 8th and 9th century, and in the southern kingdom to a lesser degree, but nevertheless uh, was overrun there. Uh, and finally ended up in the Babylonian exile. So, with that little preamble, uh, that's where we're going to begin tonight, with chapter 5. Now, let me, if you go to page um, 18, at the bottom of page 18, it gives you a little... Uh, sentence there that I'd like to repeat, although this is in reference to the first four chapters, it bears repeating because this is something that we have to remember in order to make sense out of the next three or four chapters. Right at the bottom it says, Moses' first address. Remember this book is divided into four major addresses or speeches. Not that they were given as speeches, but they were written as if they were speeches. It says, Moses' first address, or speech, concludes with a summary, not simply of the foregoing material, but of the entire book of Deuteronomy. 
The material found here was incorporated into Deuteronomy during the exile, 587 to 539 B.C., when circumstances forced Israel to reconsider the meaning of its relationship with God and to examine the status of that relationship. And that's exactly what I said. After wondering how do they get there and why, they finally came to the realization it was their own darn fault. Now, I hate to belabor the point, but our society is falling into the same trap. Exactly the same trap. And the purpose of learning what happened in the past is to prevent it from repeating itself. So, we've got to take the bull by the horns and make sure that we don't become part of the trap. Alright? So that's where I want to begin. If you read the last sentence on the uh, opposite page, 19, it says it's really essentially the same thing. When Israel disregarded God's commandments, disaster followed. And that's true, as I've mentioned before, in the four time periods of Old Testament history. Each one of those time periods ended in disaster. And it's because of disobedience and disregard for God's laws. Not that he wants you to be puppets or, uh, you know, not have a free will, but he wants you to understand what the consequences are and prevent you from falling into those consequences. It says, when Israel disregarded God's commandments, disaster followed. Flouting the stipulations of the covenant resulted in Israel's exile from the land. The faith of the Deuteronomist leads them <coughs> excuse me, to expect that God will bring blessing from the curse of the exile and restore Israel to an intimacy with God that is unparalleled. And that did happen. After 50 years in exile, roughly 50 years, um, a small remnant, a small group of Jewish people were then returned to Israel by Cyrus the Persian, because Cyrus had overrun the Babylonian kings, Nebuchadnezzar and his son. And Cyrus then permitted the Israelites to return to the area around Jerusalem or the area of Judah. And he even provided uh, assistance and resources to rebuild the temple and return most of the utensils and things that had been taken from the temple some 50 years before. So, each of those time periods, as I've said before, started out with God's help and good graces, but the same thing happened. And within 500 years, it all went sort of down the drain, and each of the time periods ended in disaster. Just coincidentally, 
our country is just a little over five year, 500 years old. Since Columbus discovered America, we're falling into the same trap. Our society, our government, and so many of our leaders are leading us down the sort of so-called garden path, um, ignoring, in fact, wanting to get rid of God altogether in many ways. Um, and I don't want to belabor the point, but I think you get the idea. Okay. Let's begin on page 21 here. Right in the middle on the extreme right side. As we said before at the beginning of chapter 1, this new address begins with the words, This is the law. The first chapter began with the words, these are the words. And you'll find that in chapter 30 and again in 33. That kind of statement, which means, heads up folks, you're going to get some information that is important, so listen. This is the law which Moses set before the Israelites. Now we're going to go through a lot of this and I want to go through quickly because you've heard most of this in the past. Uh, but it's important that we re-explain some of it in order to put it in the context of the writers of this book. Not in the mind and voice of Moses. Okay. These are the ordinances, statutes, and decrees which he proclaimed to them when they had come out of Egypt and were beyond the Jordan in the ravine opposite Beth Peor in the land of Sion, king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Hershbon, and whom Moses and the Israelites defeated after coming out of Egypt. They occupied this land and the land of Og, king of Bashan, as well, the land of these two kings of the Amorites in the region east of the Jordan, which is the country of Jordan now, from whatever this is, and I'm not going to pronounce some of these words, <laughs> on the edge of the Wadi. A Wadi is a small river. Okay. Small river. A stream, you might say. Arnon uh, to Mount Sion, that is Hermon. And all the Arabah, or Arabia today, east of the Jordan, as far as the Arabah Sea, or Arabian Sea, under the slopes of Pisgah. Right. This is just sort of re-summarizing how the Israelites got from Egypt to the edge of the promised land with the help and aid and guidance of Moses. All right. And, of course, we're now, exact, as I said before, we're repeating a lot of things that you've heard before that are in the other books, but there's a reason for it. Okay. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and decrees which I proclaim in your hearing this day, that you may learn them and take care to observe them. 
The Lord our God made a covenant with us. We've talked about covenant before. It's extremely important that you kind of get that in mind. All right? The covenant is the overall promise that God would take care of his people in a special way. Uh, not that he didn't love other uh, creatures and so forth, but the Jewish people were special because they were the ones who were going to develop the foundation of what the Messiah would eventually teach and from whom the Messiah would come. All right. Of course, you don't read any of that in this book, but that's the reason. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. Not with our fathers did he make this covenant, but with us. That means us all the way down through history. All of us who are alive here this day. The Lord spoke with you face to face on the mountain from the midst of the fire. Since you were afraid of the fire and would not go up to the mountain. I stood between the Lord and you at that time. To announce to you those words of the Lord. Now, this whole idea of the Lord being up on the mountain, that's where all humanity, just about, when they think of God, they think of something up there, rather than in here. And that's why God can hear us, because he's in here, he's not up there. Remember, people on the other side of the earth say, down there. Okay. And we think of down there as another place. Okay. The Decalogue. Now, you all know what the Decalogue is, do you not? Deca means ten. Log means words. All right? Ten commandments. I, the Lord, am your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that place of slavery. You shall not have other gods beside me. You shall not carve idols for yourself in the shape of anything in the sky above or the earth below or the waters beneath the earth. You shall not bow down before them or worship them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, now, these are, the, these are the words that are in this book, but they're not the words that we generally think of as being the first commandment, are they? The reason is because the writers of this book are addressing an idolatrous people who were doing exactly these kinds of things. You see, so that's why by putting it in the mouth of Moses, it gives it more importance, more emphasis. And the writers are hoping that the people who read this, the people who are actually being idolatrous and worshipping idols of all different kinds, will get the message. Unfortunately, it didn't work. The other point is, well, never mind, we'll pass on that. The Lord spoke with you face to face on the mountain from the midst of flare. Since you were afraid of flare, <coughs> you would not go up the mountain. 
And I stood between the Lord and you at the time to announce to you these words of the Lord. All right? Excuse me. I'm jumping over now to verse 11. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave unpunished him who takes his name in vain. As we've said before in other classes, this is misunderstood in today's understanding of those words. The name of a person, particularly the name of the Lord, meant far, far more than just what he or she was called. You know, Pete or Joe or Mary or Sally or whatever. It meant the whole person, what he stood for. Right? People in that culture did not share their names. They did not wear a tag and say, hi, my name is Joe. That was totally non-existent. They protected their name because it was all they had of their own. And they would not even give their name out to people who were not immediate family unless there was a very serious reason for doing so. Because the name meant, if you gave your name to somebody in that culture, it meant you gave part of yourself, part of authority to that person. Because that's what contracts were all about. They were all verbal. And promises and oaths were all verbal. And it was all signified by your name. <clears throat> and so, when you are talking about a person's name, you're really talking about that whole person, what he or she stands for. And in the case of God, what you're really talking about is the divinity of God, because that is the essence of his nature. All right. So, if you read this and reword it into its meaning, as we understand it today, it's a little different. It says, you shall not take the person of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave unpunished him who takes God in vain. Does that sound a little different? So many people think, oh, you know, the second commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain. Oh, that means you can't swear. Well, that's not what it means. That's including, but that's a relatively minor part. Besides, swearing in the culture that this was written in is an entirely different meaning in itself than using some naughty word or using God's name in vain. Swearing meant taking an oath, promising something to be done. It can be bilateral or unilateral. But swearing there uh, is far different than what we think of it today. Right? And so many people who do not know the background of Jewish culture uh, totally ignore that or overlook it because it just doesn't come into their realm of thinking. Take care to keep holy the Sabbath day as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you may labor and do your work, 
But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord, your God. No work may be done then, whether by you or your son or daughter or your male or female slaves or your ox or your ass or any other beast. Now, that sounds fine, but it's impractical, particularly in today's understanding of work and today's understanding of the Sabbath. Even Jesus said to the Pharisees who criticized Jesus and his followers for pulling off grains of wheat as they were walking through the wheat field uh, and eating them because they were hungry, all right? And the Pharisees were criticizing them for doing something that was considered work. And Jesus said, you misunderstand. Didn't David do the same kind of thing? In fact, he even did something worse. He went into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, and took the showbread and ate that because his uh, men were hungry and in need. And my men are hungry and in need also. You've got to remember, and Jesus is saying, you've got to remember that the Sabbath is made for man not man for the Sabbath. Meaning that six days you do your work, but on the seventh day you keep it holy by remembering God, but you also can do other things to rest the body. Because if you work the body seven days a week without rest, gradually your body's going to wear down and you're not good to anybody. I remember during the Second World War and even for a while uh, afterwards when I was working uh, and we worked six and occasionally seven days a week, after two or three weeks, you could care less whether you were making time and a half or double time or anything else because you didn't have time to spend it anyways. And all you did was work and sleep and maybe eat in between. So that's what this commandment is all about. Common sense. And God is the first to admit that common sense overrides laws. Now, these are the first three commandments. Have you ever wondered why the Ten Commandments are often depicted often depicted as two tablets of stone that's uh, looks like some well uh, because Commandments 1, 2, and 3 are on one side, and 4 through 10 are on the other. The first three are between you and God, directly. 4 through 10 are between you and your fellow man. That's why they are always depicted uh 
as two tablets. Of course, it says right in here that later on we'll see when Moses had to go back up and get a Xerox copy of Lilith, uh he had to cut two two tablets of stuff. All right, and it mentions that right in here. Okay, let's go on. <clears throat> I'm gonna, I, I didn't finish quite reading this because there is an important point here. It says, take care to keep holy the Sabbath as the day, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you may labor and do your work, but on the seventh day, uh, is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. No work may be done then, whether by you or your son or daughter or your male or female slave or your ox or ass, etc. Or the alien who lives with you, <clears throat> your male and female slaves should rest as you do. For remember that you too were once slaves in Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you from there with his strong hand and outstretched arm. And that is why the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. All right, now. Oh, <laughs> an alien! An alien is somebody who is not Jewish. In this case, all right. Later on, the term Gentile came into use, but in this time period, that had not come into use. All right. So, alien is somebody who was not Jewish. Remember the Jewish. People spent three or four hundred years in Egypt and acquired friends and so forth. So when they came back uh, under the guidance of Moses, they brought friends with them. All right. And the same is true later on during the Babylonian exile. Some of the Babylonians came to Israel with the remnant of Jewish people. So you have that kind of thing. Starting at verse 16. Honor your father and your mother. And your wife of course. As the Lord your God has commanded you. That you may have a long. I'm not going to read this. Because this is the short version. Uh, of the Ten Commandments. Pretty much as you've already learned. And have known since you were children. I'm sure. Let's go on to verse 22 on the next page. These words are nothing more. The Lord spoke with a loud voice to your entire assembly on the mountain from the midst of the fire and the dense cloud. See, he's talking about this sort of in the third person and in sort of a past tense. And because this is a repeating for the people of the time period in which this was written. And that is why the language, you see, if you read the book of Exodus, where the Ten Commandments were first given to the Jewish people, the wording is in the present tense, as if you were in the presence of Moses at the time they are given. This is because what the writers are trying to do is to convince the people of the time that this was written 
that they are not following these rules. Okay. It says, but when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness, well, the mountain was ablaze with fire. You came to me in the person of all your tribal heads and elders and said, the Lord our God has indeed let us see his glory and his majesty. We have heard his voice from midst of the fire and have found out uh, today that a man can still live after God has spoken with him. There was a custom and a belief at the time that if God spoke to a person directly, as he did to Moses, that they would die. The same with if God appeared to somebody, that they would die. That was a, you know, a superstitious belief, but it was held strongly. And that is why the writers here are trying to dispel that. If you hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. For what mortal has heard as we have the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire and survive? Go closer, you, and hear all that the Lord our God will say. And then tell us what the Lord our God tells you. So what they're doing here is they're saying, we don't want to hear what he has to say. We're afraid. So, Moses, you do it. You go and tell, find out what he's saying, and we'll listen to you. We don't want to hear what he has to say. You see, so they're coming back and doing uh, what we've said has been going on here. But, at the top of the next page, the Lord heard your words as you were speaking to me and said to me, I have heard the words these people have spoken to you, which are all well said. Would that they always be of such a mind to fear me and to keep all my commandments. Then they and their descendants would prosper forever. So, you, Moses, go tell them to return to their tents, and then you wait here near me, and I will give you all the commandments and their statutes, and decrees that you must teach them, that they may observe them in the land which I am giving them to possess. Be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you, not turning aside to the right or to the left, but following exactly the way prescribed for you by the Lord your God, that you may live and prosper and may have long life in the land which you are to occupy. <clears throat> if you read down in the commentary on that same page 25, uh, the large one <clears throat> paragraph, oh, about two-thirds of the way down, it says, the commandments come from God, but they are interpreted through Moses. Both the people and God choose Moses as the mediator of the law, which derives its authority from God and its accountability from Moses. Later, Deuteronomy will speak about the successors to the Mosaic law or office. But this text 
attests to the authenticity of Israel's encounter with God as mediated through a human being. Any questions so far? All right, when we get into chapter 6, there's a very interesting uh, sort of departure here. It says, these then are the commandments, the statutes, and the decrees which the Lord your God has ordered, that you may be taught to observe in the land in which you are crossing for conquest. Now remember, this is written long after that happened. But he's trying to get the people to go back to that frame of mind that they had at the time it happened. Okay. So that you and your son and your grandson may fear the Lord, your God, and keep throughout the days of your life all his statutes and commandments which I enjoin on you, and thus have long life. So hear then, Israel, and be careful to observe them that you may grow and prosper the more in keeping with the promise of the Lord, the God of your fathers, to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, here is, uh, I think, a very interesting point. We'll read it first, uh, and then I'll come back to explain. The Great Commandment. Hear, O Israel, The Lord your God, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And therefore you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Take to heart these words which I enjoin on you today, and drill them into your children. Speak of them at home and abroad, whether you are busy or at rest. Bind them at your wrist as a sign, and let them be as a pendant on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your houses and on your gates. And literally, that is what the Jewish people did for centuries. The men would wear hats with a little, you might say, a piece of vellum or, or animal skin, which vellum is, uh, rolled up with a scripture on it. And it would be tied to the center of the hat. Um, They would have a piece of material posted to the doorpost with other scriptures written them on. And they would do things like that, but they wouldn't obey them. And that is the frustrating part. But the interesting part about this, this whole section right here, Verse 4 through 9, in Jewish faith is the most holy of all prayers. It is called the Shema, S-H-E-M-A, the Shema. And it is like in Catholic liturgy and Catholic prayers, when we say glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, uh, that's a doxology that recognizes the divinity of God. All right. And that's exactly the purpose of this prayer. It is the holiest of Jewish prayers that they still recite today. 
Unfortunately, they don't follow most of the laws that they purport to worship. If you go through the first five books of the Bible, actually four, because there are no laws, to my knowledge, uh, in the book of Genesis. But if you go through the next four books, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you'll find that there are 613 laws. And that is what the Jewish people refer to as the law in capital letters. And it is what they worship. Unfortunately, you don't get very far by worshiping laws. You only get someplace by obeying them, but not worshiping them. Okay? Difference. There's a big difference. Okay? You could worship all the traffic laws in the world, but if you go through a red light, you're still going to get a ticket, presuming if you got caught. Okay? So, worshiping is one thing. You see, for centuries, from the time of Moses to the time of the Babylonian exile, the Ark of the Covenant contained these two tablets, Xerox copies, that is, uh, along with a couple other items, in the temple, the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem. Interesting story in the first book of Kings, how that got started. But uh, we won't get into that tonight. At the Babylonian captivity, uh, or exile, in 587, the Babylonians destroyed the temple. It was a sign of God's displeasure with these people, but not totally irreparable. All right? And included in that was destroyed this Ark of the Covenant. So, when these people returned from Babylon, 50 years later, they had nothing to return to. And it was in Babylon, during the exile, that they finally got religion, so to speak. They finally understood what this book was about and why it was written. And they promised uh, the prophet Ezekiel that they would follow it. And so when they got back, they were full of zeal and Cyrus the Great uh, and his successors helped the Jewish people return and rebuild the temple as best they could, etc. And the only thing that was missing, of course, was the Ark of the Covenant. So what did they do? They took and revised all of the first five books of the uh, first four books of the temple, I'm sorry, first four books of the Bible. There was only four at the time. And then they added the fifth book or the first book that is in there now, Genesis. And they put those on scrolls, very fancy scrolls, and they put that in the Holy of Holies to replace the Ark of the Covenant. And that is what is in Jewish synagogues today, is the scrolls of the first five books of the Bible. The Torah, yes. That is what it's called, the Torah. In Greek, it would be the Pentateuch. In English, it's the law. 
And that is what they still worship today. Unfortunately, they don't observe most of them, partly because some of them are totally obsolete. Um, but uh, a good majority of them are <coughs> worthy of at least observing. Many of them were never intended to be religious laws. Many of them were just good common sense. Many of those laws, such as the dietary laws, were for health and hygiene purposes, not intended to be worshipped. But over a period of time, they became worship in themselves. And that's not difficult to understand. If you think um, blessing yourself, for example, or when Catholics go into a, a uh, Catholic church, there is little water fountains or dishes or something there, and they dip their hand in and bless themselves. I bet you 90% of the people don't know why, but they do it anyways, right? <coughs> and it was originally a sign of purification. Not, not a total, like a shower or anything, but a sign of spiritual purification. Today, it is considered a sign of renewing your baptismal vows. Okay? Or your baptismal commitment. And if you do it going in, you don't have to do it coming out. But I dare say that a lot of people fight to get their hand in that fountain before they leave. Okay? All right. But it's not necessary. You dip your hand and say, you know, dear Lord, wash me clean of sin or some, you know, brief prayer reminding you of your baptismal commitment to God through Jesus Christ. So if you've done that, and if you've gone to Mass, you don't have to do it on the way out. Well, yeah, but now again, you got to stop and think of why is this being written to these people? And it's because they believed that there were other gods. Because that was part of their culture, particularly in the northern uh, part of the country, the northern kingdom of Israel. They intermarried with a lot of non-Jewish people who brought in these other ideas. And so that's the way you have to look at it. There's another part when we get into chapter 7 uh, that is just a, has nothing to do with the idea of other gods, but it is just as confusing, which I'll get into in a few minutes. Okay. That's the only explanation I can give you. I've run into that before. Yeah. Obviously, there are no other gods. Okay. Uh, but th many of these people did believe at the time. So he is saying that, that, that people, maybe they thought that or something. Not yes. That, that's not what he believes. No, not the writers not saying that, that he believes that. It's that the people at the time in culture did. Yes. Let's go on, and we'll cover some of that here <clears throat> in verse 10 uh, on that same page. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, which he swore to your fathers. Now, remember, they are already in the land. 
but he's reminding them here. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would give you a land with fine, large cities that you did not build, with houses full of goods and all sorts that you did not garner, with cisterns that you did not dig, with vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. And when, therefore, you eat your fill, take care not to forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that place of slavery. The Lord your God shall you fear, and him shall you serve, and by his name shall you swear. Swear, in this case, is not dirty words. It means taking an oath. You shall not follow other gods, such as those of the surrounding nations. See, right there is what I'm talking about. Lest the wrath of the Lord your God flare up against you, and he destroy you from the face of the land. For the Lord your God is in your midst, is a jealous God. And you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. All right. Now, let's digress for just a moment. You've all, Massa is a city. Not to be confused with Matza. All right. Um, if you recall the, in the New Testament, chapter, well, I've got the chapter, uh, the temptation of Christ as described in Matthew's Gospel, where the devil, where Christ went out into the desert before he started his public ministry and is tempted by the devil. And, you know, the three temptations. And one of them, of course, is uh, towards the end. Uh, I think the third one that the devil is offering him all the, the uh, temple goods of the world at that time that he could see in this vision. And he says, Jesus said to him, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And he is quoting out of the book of Deuteronomy. All three of those replies in that uh, confrontation between uh, Satan and Christ come out of the book of Deuteronomy. All of them. But keep the commandments of the Lord your God and the ordinance and statutes he has enjoined on you. Do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that you may, according to his word, prosper and may enter into and possess the good land which the Lord promised on oath to your fathers, thrusting all your enemies out of your way. Now, this is one of the things that I wanted to I mentioned or referred to earlier. When we get into chapter 7, it talks about uh, similar things, about the destruction of the pagans that were already in the land, uh, the promised land. Remember, these people were gone for three or four hundred years, and now they're coming back, and God is giving them, or re-giving them, the promised land. Well, other people had come in and built cities and towns and vineyards and so forth and so on, and now they are being told to exterminate, and that's what chapter 7 is almost all about, uh, and that's rather difficult. How many of you had time or, or had trouble 
accepting uh, that kind of teaching. Um, I can imagine at least it was troubling and gave you some thought. But I did some research on that. And here's a, the first version of this book. This is the second or third, and now there's a new one coming out. Uh, but this is the first one. It goes back uh, 45 or 46 years. You can see how, you know, it's really, really a relic. Yeah. <clears throat> but it says this in connection with what we've just read and in connection with chapter 7, the conquest of Canaan. It says, as insurance that Israel will remain faithful to the covenant, which it had not been for centuries now, ever since David and Solomon, Moses now previews the future conquest of the land. He cites dangers that will be faced and gives instruction how to avoid them. The initial task is to exterminate the pagans that now inhabit the land. The list given here is a bit rhetorical, presenting an impressive picture of the nations dispossessed. Actually, some of these people were little more than fossilized remnants. I don't know exactly what the writer means by fossilized, <coughs> but um, must be decrepit as far as I know. Okay. The Canaanites <coughs> were the most important inhabitants. The Hittites and the Hivites were the remnants of once great empires. The Jebusites were the inhabitants around Jerusalem. Actually, the command to subject them <coughs> to doom was never completely carried out. Many of the Canaanites remained in the land. The next verse recognizes that situation for it forbids intermarriage with them. So if they exterminated all of them, obviously they couldn't intermarry, and yet they did. And that is part of why and how <coughs> they got into trouble with God in the first place because that was one of the laws that Moses had imposed on the people that they were not permitted to intermarry with anybody outside of their own tribe, not even another Jewish person from another tribe, and let alone somebody from who was not Jewish at all. God forbid. Oy vey. Not only are these people to be eliminated, but every trace of their religion is to be eradicated. The sacred pillars were rough cylinder, cylindrical monoliths, probably uh, phylactic symbols in honor of the male deities, the Baals of the land, B-A-A-L-S. The sacred poles were dedicated to the female deities, and probably carved in her image. Once more, this command was not carried out literally, and the Canaanite sanctuaries remained for hundreds of years under the monarchy. And that is one of the reasons why they entered into a lot of idolatry, is because 
they had intermarried with people who were not Jewish who brought in a lot of their pagan beliefs. The most noted is Queen Jezebel, who was the wife of King Ahaz. That was in the southern kingdom. But nevertheless, um, whenever you hear the word Jezebel, you automatically think of some evil woman. And boy, she was. Okay. But she was not Jewish. She was, uh, I don't remember from what nation she was, but she brought in all kinds of pagan beliefs and forced her husband, uh, the king, to not only accept some of those beliefs, but to build uh, sanctuaries uh, in their honor. What's more, the command was not carried out literally, and the Canaanite structures remained for hundreds of years under the monarchy, whence the need for the reforms of Hezekiah and Josiah. Those are the two kings that I mentioned who tried, who found this book of Deuteronomy um, in between the destruction of the northern kingdom and before the Babylonian exile. They tried to impose it on the people of the southern kingdom, but it was rejected by them also. The reason for commanding the removal of this contamination is that Israel must be kept holy. In the Old Testament, God is conceived as conferring holiness whenever he sets something aside for his own purpose. And of course, all of the people, all of the Jewish people were set aside from other nations for the purpose, as I've mentioned before, of establishing the basis for what Jesus eventually taught and for the fact that the Messiah, Jesus, was to come out of that group. Okay. I want to go back to our, our own book. Anyways, uh, I can't give you a good explanation, but that's the way it goes. All right. If we go over to page 28, chapter 7, the destruction of the pagans, most of what I just already read, but about two-thirds of the way down on that page in the commentary, it says, while this theological judgment also is not very attractive to believers today, it reflects Israel's experience with the nations, especially Assyria and Babylon which were serious threats to Israel's very existence at the time. The Deuteronomic tradition was beginning to take shape. In these circumstances, Deuteronomy uses the strongest possible terms to mandate that Israel avoid any contact with other nations. The assumption behind such a prohibition is that cultural assimilation is just as great a threat to Israel's existence as is the political and military pressure being brought to bear upon Israel by the powerful nations warring against it. Assimilation is just as much a danger as the wars that were being waged against it. 
And at the time of King Ahaz, Ahaz was, you know, and you hear at Christmas time this uh, little story about the prophet Isaiah trying to convince King Ahaz not to enter into an alliance with Egypt against Assyria. And Ahaz tells uh, Isaiah to, you know, get out of my way. I'm going to do it anyways. And Isaiah says to him, look, this is what the Lord wants you to not enter into this alliance. <clears throat> Ask for a sign, any kind of a sign. And the Lord will explain and show you what, what I've been saying to be true. Ahaz says, no, don't want to do that. I don't want to test the Lord. So Isaiah, in all exasperation, says, all right, I'll give you the sign. And then he goes into what we've always sort of uh, connected with Christmas, as the virgin shall be with child and name him Emmanuel etc., and he will be powerful, etc., etc. Okay? Alright, that's the sign, and that's the circumstances behind that little story. Ahaz was in the process, and he finally did, enter into an alliance with Egypt against Assyria, and at the Battle of Megiddo, he lost and was executed. Okay? And Jezebel was suffered a brutal uh, death as God had predicted because of her pagan worship and forcing her husband into doing the same thing. Okay. <coughs> Let's go over to uh, verse 12 on the next page. As your reward for heeding these decrees and observing them carefully, the Lord your God will keep with you the merciful covenant which he promised on oath to your fathers. He will love and bless and multiply you. He will bless the fruit of your womb and produce and the produce of your soil, your grain and wine and oil, the issue of your herds and the young of your flock. In other words, if you do what the writers are saying and return to obedience to God and commit yourself to God alone, then he will bless all of your efforts. And unfortunately, they would not accept that. We go into verse uh, 17. Perhaps you will say to yourself, these nations are greater than we. How can we dispose them? But do not be afraid of them. Rather, call to mind what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt. The great testings which your own eyes have seen, the signs and wonders, his strong hand and outstretched arm, which the Lord your God brought you out of. The same also will he do for to all the nations of whom you are now afraid. 
Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets among them until the survivors who have hidden from you are destroyed. And therefore, do not be terrified by them. For the Lord your God, who is in your midst, that's a phrase Jesus often used, in your midst, is a great and awesome God. He will dislodge your these nations before you, little by little. You cannot exterminate them all at once, lest the wild beasts become too numerous for you. The Lord your God will deliver them up to you and will rout them utterly until they are annihilated. He will deliver their kings into your hand and you will make their names perish from under the heavens. You see, what the writers are doing are trying to persuade the leaders to return to God and obey God's laws and he will protect them and the country. Because you had Assyrian armies in the north and you had Moab on the east and you had Egypt in the south and they were all trying to close in on Israel. <laughs> You're right. Things haven't changed. Uh, and that's what I said. History repeats itself. And the rulers of both the north and the south ignored not only the book of Deuteronomy, but all of the prophets. And by their total gross ignoring, God wiped the, the northern country out. The Assyrians overran the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C., carted off all of those people who could do them some good, and they never returned because of their idolatry. The southern kingdom fared a little better. They were overrun in 587 B.C. by the Babylonians. They also were carted off. That is, only the ones that could do them some good. They left behind the elderly, the sick, the children, etc., who could not be of any use to them. And, of course, when the able-bodied men were gone, they couldn't do the farming and the other things, the herding and so forth. And so starvation set in. Uh, the cities were totally destroyed. And the land went into ruin. Even though they were only there for about 50 years, uh, many, of course, the people there had uh, children while they were in Babylon, and those children knew nothing about Israel except what they heard. And when they got back, you can imagine the clash between the, those who returned versus those who never went to Babylon in the first place. And that, of course, is told in the story of Jeremiah and Ezra and Nehemiah. Okay. I want to leave it there. We'll do chapters 8 through 11 next week. Um, or not, yeah, we'll go 8 through 11 next week. Any questions? Yes, he tried to. And uh, other people tried to eliminate a lot of them as well. In the 
Russian Orthodox churches. Uh, they eliminated statues, but not pictures. And that's how the uh, there was a whole group of, of people called the iconoclast or picture breakers um, that came into power in the Russian Orthodox Church. And many of those, uh, I forgot what they're called today, uh, the name escapes me, but uh, they are quite popular today. Yes, ma'am? You're praying to God. That's right. But you're using that as a reminder. That's all. Big. Well, a lot of people don't. You don't need it. But, as I said, these are works of art. And they came about uh, in the Middle Ages when the Mass was in Latin and most people could not understand Latin. So, when the churches started putting in uh, stained glass windows. The people who could not understand the Latin or could not read, which was a good majority of them, started looking at these stained glass windows, and that is how the cult of the saints developed. That's the work of art. Well, the end times is what you're referring to. End times. The end times started with the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven, leaving us with the Holy Spirit. From that time on to today and to the end of time is called the end times. Okay? You got one of these, I'm sure? All right. The end times started, looking at it upside down, the end times started here at this point, and continues all the way through there. It is not any specific point in time. It is a continuous point in time. All right. But you're right. Uh, history repeats itself, so it goes through cycles. And we don't know exactly where we are in that cycle, but obviously... Um, there are, that's right, they've been at each other's throats for 4,000 years. Why should it change? And yet they lived in semi-peace for hundreds of years. Yes, 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 that's true. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't have an answer for that. Uh, I realize it's somewhat hypothetical. Yeah, yeah. They've, and as I've said, I think in the first class, it is because uh, Abraham took things into his own hands before God was ready and had a child by his wife's servant. All right. Sarah had a child by Abraham whose name was Ishmael. That was Abraham's first child. He was not accepted because it was not God's plan and Sarah was not the mother. <clears throat> when Isaac was born by Sarah, the father being Abraham, that was the recognized heir, according to God. And he banished Ishmael, who then became the father of all of the Arabs. All right. 
At least that is what they believe. There's no way to prove or disprove that. All right. But that is what they believe. And because Ishmael was the firstborn and the culture of that time was that the firstborn inherits everything, that is the law or the basis on which they claim Israel as being their property. All right. And of course, it was on the basis of God's promise to Abraham through Isaac that uh, the promised land would remain in the hands of Abraham's descendants. That's why Isaac uh, claims and all the descendants claim that Palestine and Israel is their property. And there the twain shall meet. You know, for 4,000 years, this fight has been going on, and I don't see any resolution of it until the end of time. That's a long way around saying, yeah, Chet? No, we'll get into that next week. Well, presumably you've already read eight. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's just that we don't have time. Okay. You have to be a little flexible with these things. All right. Okay. Be a little flexible, you know. All right. Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. Yes, a lot of people do. A lot of people do find that disturbing. But remember, anytime a person loses their life for the benefit of God's plan of salvation, that person is assured of eternal life. That's the teachings of the church. Take, for example, the innocent children. Remember when... Herod wanted to destroy the so-called new king of the Jews, according to the Magi. And so he slaughtered all of the uh, Jewish boys in and around Bethlehem, at, you know, up to two years old, because he didn't know exactly what time. Uh, everybody thinks how cruel that was. And it was for the people living, the parents, etc. But those children automatically inherited heaven. Yes, yes. Yes, but remember, that was stated after the fact. All right? After the fact. It was written in the seventh or I mean, the 8th or ninth century, and it's referring back to events that took place in the 15th or 14th century B.C. So, whether it actually happened or not, we don't know. And, of course, as this other writer says, if it did happen, it was a very small number of people. We're not talking about millions of people because 
the area was not populated by millions of people at that time as it is today. Okay. Yes, Mike? Yeah, well, in a way, it wasn't the coming of Christ. It was the rejection of Christ. And the death and the resurrection, his death really, at the hands of the Jewish people who manipulated the Romans actually into doing it. That was the end of the first covenant signified by the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Yes. And that's the end of that fourth time period. You know, and yes, after three times of disasters happening and God bailing them out, he finally said, enough is enough, I've sent. And of course, the um, one of the <coughs> parables that Jesus uses in the gospel is about the wine, uh, the wine, uh, Vineyard owner, excuse me, the vineyard owner who uh, prepares all of his vineyards and so forth and then sends, uh, then leases them out. Um, this was just read recently, leases them out and uh, the people who lease, he leases them to uh, did not take care of them. And so the vineyard owner sends representatives who are killed and so forth. Anyways, this is a parable of God and the Jewish people uh, to whom God sent the prophets to try to straighten them out and have the prophets explain that they were wrong, the rulers were wrong, etc., etc. But all the prophets were killed by their own people because the people didn't like what the prophets had to say. Right? Yes, so at the end of that fourth time period when the Son of God was executed by his own people, as were the prophets, God withdrew the covenant and established the new covenant under Christ and the church. Right. That's right. That's right, because they don't recognize that. They don't recognize that yet. You know, they're still as stubborn as they were 2,000 years ago. Okay. Yes, Susan? Let's end with a prayer. Lord, we know that like your laws, some of the explanations are just as difficult to understand. But we want to do it because you are the divine God of all things, of all creation. Help us then to understand how they apply to us today. Help us to have the grace, the courage, the motivation to want to obey you. And help us to stem the tide of evils that are facing us today so that all things might work together for your honor and glory. So we give you thanks. We ask that you continue to bless us and help us better understand your scriptures, your teachings, and you yourself. So we thank you for this time together.
We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.